Well, since the beginning of this year, if you've been hanging out with us, uh, you know that we've been talking about the fact that what we're trying to do this year is to actively seek to enter into the story of the king. You know that the king as well, if you've been with us, whose story that we're actively seeking to enter into is none other than King Jesus. And you know that he's the king that we need because we started out this series, I think it's what, five weeks ago now. And we said, look, guys, we need a king. And the king that we need is Jesus. And here's why. Because we need for someone who can save us, which incidentally, all the way through the Bible, that's the role of the king. It is to bring salvation. Okay, well, we need to be saved, not just from our sin, but that is something only Jesus can do. However, we also need to be saved from ourselves. From the chaos and from the disaster that ensues in my life and in your life, in my family and in your family, in this church, in our city, in our nation, in this world, when I do what's right in my own eyes and my wife does what's right in her own eyes and our kids do what's right in their own eyes and your husband or wife does what's right in his own eyes and your kids do what's right in your own eyes and the whole rest of us do what's right in our own eyes, what happens? Chaos, disaster. And let me ask you, who other than Jesus, God made man, has the power, has the authority, has the position has the wisdom to deliver us from that. Humanity needs to be delivered. We need a king, and there's only one who qualifies, and his name is Jesus. But there are some things that we need to know about a king, and we talked about that in week two. We came to week two and said, you know what? A king is not a politician. A king is not a mayor. A king is not a governor. A king is not even a president. A king is not somebody that we elect and delegate authority to over the course of our lives and then expect allegiance and loyalty from and service from. And if that king does not serve us, if you will, the way that we want him to serve us, well, then what do we feel just fine doing? Well, we can criticize and malign him. We can withhold ourselves and our resources from him. We can conspire to get him booted out of office and replace him with somebody who hopefully will do a better job of serving us. Sorry, that's a politician. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about some leader who puts his, you know, licks his finger and sticks it up to the winds and then decides what to do. Who comes to us and consults and says, what do you think that I ought to do? I don't know. I'm really wrestling with this. We're talking about a sovereign king. And so we came together in week two and said, listen, we've seen that we need a king. We've seen that the king that we need is Jesus. But here's what we need to kind of reckon with. When you have a king, then you serve the king. You learn to stop doing what's right in your eyes, and you learn to start doing what's right in his eyes. But then we got together in week three and said, yeah, but that presupposes something. And what it presupposes is that we have a king that actually speaks, who actually tells us what's right in his eyes. I mean, how am I going to learn to do that if he doesn't ever tell me anything? And we said, oh, but we do have a king that speaks. And we talked about all these different ways that our king speaks, not just to the characters of the Bible that we're studying but to me and to you, the primary vehicle being God's Word. You cannot come to know the voice of the Lord and neglect His Word. And then last week, as Matt said at the beginning of the service today, we got together and saw that we have a king who is all-powerful. He is the king who can do absolutely anything with one caveat, but sin. He can't do that, and that actually adds to his glory, does it not? Our king can do absolutely anything. And the evidence that we saw of that last week is the image of resurrection from the dead. Our king is a king who can bring life even out of dead things, dead marriages, dead bodies, dead dreams, dead feelings, dead hopes, dead, just line it up, fill in the blank. He is the king who can do anything. 
and can be believed, therefore, then, for anything. Well, this week we come back and we look at another attribute of our king. And this is his sovereignty. This is his providential control of everything. We see that our king controls, please don't miss this, it's kind of big, absolutely everything. And by absolutely everything, for the record, I mean absolutely everything. There is nothing and there is no one that Christ our king does not either immediately or immediately through a secondary cause actively direct and control and use in such a way as to ultimately bring him glory and bring us good. Now, I want you to let that sink in today. That is a really big statement. We pick up our study today in 1 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, where we read that the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for how long? For seven months. Okay, if you're just joining us today, that means nothing to you. So let me catch you up a little bit. Last week, when we gathered together, the Israelites, we saw, went out to battle against their arch enemies, the hated, the dreaded Philistines. And they went out to battle against the Philistines as the people of the God who can do anything. And so they went out confident that they would win. Why? Because surely God gives his people victory every time. I mean, you know, doesn't he? They get creamed. 4,000 of their soldiers die. They come back licking their wounds. And they think through it theologically. And they reason together, you know what? We have a God who can do anything. And we lost. So he must have allowed us to lose. Because he's not capricious. He does everything that he does for a reason. Even our defeats he ordains for a reason. But instead of seeking the reason, they did what we often do. They just kind of picked themselves up and they dusted themselves off. And they said, you know what? Instead of trying to humble myself before God, I'm going to try to manipulate God. So they went back out to fight the Philistines again, but this time they took God with them. And I'll put God in quotes because what I mean by that is they took the ark of the Lord with them into battle. And the ark of the Lord was the earthly throne of God. He was said to dwell between the golden cherubim that were on top of the box of the ark. Okay, So it's as though they're taking God with them is the idea into battle. And here's their thinking. I'm not going to humble myself before God. I'm not going to seek his reasoning and allowing me to be defeated. I'm not really interested in whatever his plans and purposes are. I'm trying to manipulate God. And my thinking is that God will surely not allow for God himself to be defeated and captured and taken into a foreign land, taken into exile, which we saw and the Bible is an image of death, so surely God will not allow himself to be defeated and to suffer death. And yet that's exactly what happens. This time they lose 30,000 soldiers. Kind of a big deal. The Ark of the Lord is captured, it's taken by the Philistines, and it's taken all the way to Ashdod, which is one of their five cities. And it's where the Temple of Dagon, their grain deity, resided. And they took the Ark of the Covenant of God, God himself, put it in quotes, okay? And they brought him into the temple and they put him before Dagon, this statue, this God that they fashioned with their hands. And they put him in there as like a court attendant to Dagon, thinking no doubt that Dagon was more powerful than the God of Israel because they couldn't imagine a God who would allow himself to be defeated, to suffer death. 
And yet there he was in the land of death, in the temple of death, until the morning of the third day. Does this sound familiar? And on the morning of the third day, the Ashdodite people came into the temple of Dagon, and and then what did they see? They found Dagon prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and destroyed. His head was gone. His hands were gone. He's wrecked. So on the morning of the third day, the God of Israel defeated the God of the enemies of his people, and then he began to defeat the enemies of his people as well, and all on his own. He afflicts them with tumors and maybe also rats. It's kind of confusing as to how that all works out, but maybe it was like the bubonic plague, you know, it was spread by rats. So he afflicts them with tumors and rats, thus commencing his own deliverance, his return from exile, a picture of resurrection on the morning of the third day, because what happens is the Ashdodite people are afflicted by these tumors and rats, and they're like, man, you know, we've seen Dagon and he's destroyed. Same day we're getting all of this happening. I think it's time for God, quote unquote, to go visit city number two. And city number two says, all right, nice. And they take God. And God afflicts them with tumors and rats. And they say, you know, I think it's time for the ark of God, for the God of Israel to go visit city number three. And city number three, which, you know, probably should have known better at this point, says, no problem, we'll take him. What an honor. And they get afflicted with tumors and rats. So like, who's in charge of city number four? Because they're next. And they take him. And they get afflicted with tumors and rats. All right, surely city five turns them down, right? I mean, come on, seriously. Like, who's the mayor of that city? And does he ever get reelected after this? Because what he says is, oh, you want to bring him over? Right on! Bring him in! Guess what happens? I'm going to go with tumors and rats. So we come to our story today, and we read that all of that took seven months. Again, it says that the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months, you know, and and you hear that, you read that, and you think about it, you think, what is wrong with these people? Like, did they not see the pattern? But then I think you need to stop and ask yourself the same question. And I say that because the patterns of destruction that are tied to the sins that we also repeatedly and habitually commit, frankly, are no less clear. I mean, just think about your life and think about what you do. It goes something like this. It's really a direct cause and effect. Uh, When I do A, I get B. 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 You know what? I'm thinking about doing A again. What do you think is going to happen this time? Oh, I don't know. I, I... Yeah, I'm just going to go with B. So when I read that the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines, systematically destroying them city by city for seven whole months, I thought, what's wrong with these people? And then I thought, wait a minute, what sin am I hanging on to? What am I cherishing? What am I clinging to? That's systematically destroying me. What about you? And then here's what else I thought. I thought, wait a minute. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines, systematically destroying them city by city. For how long? 
for seven months. That is not a coincidence. In fact, in the universe in which God controls everything, as we're going to see today, there's no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as accident. There's no such thing as as happenings that, you know, just, well, the victims of whatever. It doesn't work that way. There's no coincidence that it was there exactly seven months. Because seven is the number of completion. All the way through the Bible, we see it in many, many, many different examples. But the most notable one is right in the first two pages where we open the Word of God and we read how God created the heavens and the earth in the space of six days and everything in them as well. He declares them to be very good. And having completed His work, He rests on the seventh day. It's the day of completion. Which means for this story, for me and for you, All right, the Philistines held on to the ark of God, and I will hang on to my sin and you will hang on to yours with all of its destruction until the God who controls absolutely everything has fully and finally completed whatever work of humility, whatever work of brokenness, whatever work of repentance, whatever work of self-abandonment, whatever work of whatever He has ordained to accomplish in them, or in me, or in you. That's a big thought. Wow. But I'll move back from that for a second and say one of the ways that he ends those cycles. When I do A, I get B. When I do A, I get B. Hey, you know what? I think I'm going to do A. <laughs> oh, great. Do that is in moments like this. When you're seated and listening and going, yeah, you know what? When I do A, I know, I know exactly what A is in my life, and I do get B, and then I do it again, and I do get B, and I do get that, and, you know, and I'm having this aha moment. And he's saying to you through his word, time to send away the ark and be healed. Time to repent. Time to seek help. Anyway, so we read that the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines, systematically destroying them city by city for seven whole months. And then we read that the Philistines called for the priests and diviners. Okay, the politicians have failed them clearly. This is some kind of a, an event dealing with the, you know, numinous. So we're going to call together the priests and diviners, get the holy men together, gather up the theologians. We need a little counsel from them now. And they said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Because hanging on to it is literally killing us. So tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? Because we're not going to keep it any longer. And the priests and diviners said, If you send away the ark of God to Israel, do not send it away empty. But by all means, return to him a guilt offering. And then you will be healed. That's a fascinating message. That is a message I think that our whole world and certainly our culture needs to hear. That first of all, there's such a thing as offense. Offense against a holy God. That then results in guilt. That then needs to be paid for. The missing part of this message that they bring, and it's a big missing piece, is Jesus The one who alone can save us from our sin. Why? Because he alone is God and man. 
His life alone is infinitely valuable, and all of our transgressions have been committed against an infinitely valuable being. They are of infinite devalue. And as a man for men, He offered a perfect life on our behalf. They're right about a lot of what they've got here. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? You know what? Because like it's killing us. So tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? And the priests and diviners said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means return to him a guilt offering, and then you will be healed. And kind of a curious statement, it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you, meaning it will be known to you whether or not the God of Israel has actually been the one who has been afflicting you all along with these tumors and rats, or whether the fact that the rats and tumors traveled with the ark was just mere happenstance, whether or not you've been an accident victim, victimized by chance and nothing else. And that's the issue. Is God in control here? Really? Not just of this story, but of mine and of yours. Or are we just accident victims, subject to the circumstances to randomness. And so the Philistines listened to all of this, and they said to the priests and diviners, well then, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to the God of Israel? And the priests and diviners answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, five lords, five cities, thus the number five. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory He works all things together to bring him glory to the God of Israel. And then perhaps, if we're right about this, he will lighten his hand from off of you and from off of your gods and from off of your land. And now listen to the plan that these guys, the priests and diviners, come up with because it's not just designed to appease the God of Israel. It is specifically designed to determine whether or not the God of Israel has anything to do with this or whether this is all just a big accident. Whether their suffering is just, well, you know, the result of chance. Verse 7, they say, now then take and prepare a new cart. Now, why do they want a new cart? Because they're going to put the Ark of the Covenant on the new cart. And what they don't want to do is put God, again in quotes, onto a cart that God might feel as though is a defiled cart. And thus, it would mess up the experiment. The experiment is, did he have anything to do with this? And if they right out of the gate, they put him on a dirty cart in some sense, in God's mind, he may behave as a result of the dirty cart. So they're taking away any sense or any possibility of offense from the God of Israel, take a new cart and then two milk cows, two cows that have just given birth to little calves who will die if they are apart from their moms for too long and whose every maternal instinct, you see, of these milk cows, and that is a powerful instinct, is to nurse their babies. Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. So they're untamed cows. It just keeps getting more difficult. Less circumstantial. Less subject to chance. They've never been tamed. They haven't been taught to work in tandem with another animal. And so then by nature, they're going to rebel, not work in tandem. 
And not only that, but because they've never been tamed and never been yoked and never pulled carts before, they don't know the roads and the paths and the highways and the byways. You know, the horse knows the way to the barn. If you've ever been horseback riding, like in North Carolina, what happens about the last quarter mile after you've trudged along for three hours? I mean, it's cool for like 10 minutes and then it's a total drag. You start to get close to the barn and the horse who's been to the barn 500,000 times. I mean, you don't even need to hold the reins. Why are you there? Sometimes the horse takes off for the barn. That is a thrilling moment, let me tell you. If you're not ready for that, that's a problem. These cows don't know pathways. They don't know the roads. There's nothing familiar to them except maybe the path to the barn, which is where they take their calves. Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke those cows to that cart, but take their calves home away from them, thus creating in these milk cows the strong desire to go to their calves. And then take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to the God of Israel as a guilt offering and then send this cart off and let it go its way and watch what happens. Just... Turn them loose. Send it away. And watch what happens. If then the ark of the God of Israel goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is the God of Israel who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not His hand that has struck us, but instead that it has all happened to us by coincidence. Our suffering is just coincidence. Or it's of God. So if you've done your personal worship for this week, you know what happens. The cows reject their very strong maternal instinct to return to the barn, probably the only path they knew. They work in perfect tandem, thus violating their natural impulses to rebel against this brand new thing called a yoke. Not been tamed. They pull the ark of God down a road they've never been down, and it's the direct route to Israel, and the Philistines watch. And the Israelites rejoice. And everybody gets the message. The Philistines get the message. The Israelites get the message, and I hope that we get the message. Okay, this king, man, he controls everything. Absolutely everything. There is nothing, there is no one, not even cows for crying out loud, that he does not, either directly or indirectly, through secondary causes, if you will, that he does not actively control and direct and use in ways that will in the end bring him glory and that will in the end... And the end is something we can't lose sight of. It will, in the end, bring us good. And listen, that's not just the message of this story. That is the message of story after story and and passage of Scripture after passage of Scripture. I want to read to you some of the passages of Scripture that say, oh, you know what? God's in control of this, and He's in control of this, and He's in control of this. And please know that we could be here all day and night, but we won't. Let me just give you some examples. The Bible says, for example, that our God controls the weather. 
And listen for the detail of this. In Job 37, we read, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour. Now, now notice to whom the downpour belongs. His mighty downpour. From its chamber, the one that he creates, if you will, for it, comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. And now watch this image. They turn around and around by his guidance. Now, how do we know that image? Because we live in South Florida, man. And every hurricane season, we watch the weather channel. And we've seen that circular motion coming at us, coming at others. We've experienced what we've seen. And we're not the only ones. So they turn around and around, that much we get. Don't miss the rest. By His guidance. And they do all of this, we're now told, to accomplish all that He commands of them on the face of the habitable world. That's where people live. Whether for correction or for His land or for love, He, don't miss it, causes it to happen as opposed to just sitting idly by like all the rest of us watching it on TV, you know, hoping that it doesn't come our way. How are we doing? All right, next topic. Our king controls agriculture. Psalmist says in Psalm 104, verse 14, that God causes the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. The Bible says that our king also controls the heavens. He says to Job in Job 38, can you lead forth the Maseroth, meaning the constellations in the sky? Can you lead forth the constellations in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? It's a reference to the Big Dipper. And his point to Job is, listen, you can't do that, but I can do that. And in fact, I do exactly that. Our king controls the nations. In Job 12, 23, we read that our king makes nations great and that he destroys them. He enlarges nations. And he leads them away into captivity. The Bible also says that our king controls our lives. And I want you to listen to the specificity with which he controls our lives. First of all, our king plans our days, every single one of them, even before we are born. Take that in. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes, David speaking to God, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. You didn't just know them in advance. You made them for me. The days that were formed for me and the days that have formed me. As yet there was none of them. And I want you to think about your days because not all of them are great. We're told, secondly, that our king also plans the individual steps that we each take. Proverbs 16, verse 9, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. We're told that our king plans our successes and failures, Psalm 75. 
Beginning in verse 6, not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, comes exaltation, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And oh, how we like to take credit for our success and run from our failures. We're told that our talents and abilities come from our king. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. He says, what do you have that you did not receive from God? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? That is to say, as if it was not a gift to you, but something that you did, or you earned, or you made, or you created. It's no wonder then that God calls to us and says, listen, I want you to worship me with your time and talent and yeah, with your treasure too. We're giving back to the one from whom it all came. And that's really a part of the point. Lastly, our king even controls the most seemingly random events in our lives. Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap. And the modern day equivalent of casting lots, I guess, would be the casting of dice really. Okay, so how much more random can you imagine something being? The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord? Yep. And I could go on and on and on and on with verses on all of these things, but the point of this is that Christ our King controls absolutely everything, that there's nothing and no one that he is not actively, either through secondary causes or directly, controlling and directing and using in such a way that it will ultimately bring him glory and bring us good. And the Philistines in this story got that. And the Israelites in this story got that. And the idea is for us to get that. And not just to get it, but to embrace it and to experience the good that that can do for us. Because when we submit to that reality that we cannot fully understand. And I think we've got to acknowledge that. It really should bring us peace, guys. And it should bring us peace even in the midst of the most tumultuous circumstances, even when harm comes our way, even when evil comes our way, even when injustice comes our way, even when we're disadvantaged and taken advantage of, even when we're victimized and so forth. And even when it looks like it makes no sense, it should bring us comfort and peace to know that nothing and no one is outside of the control of our sovereign king. And none of those things come to us except by permission, except by his nail-scarred hands, really. And so if that's kind of where you're at, take a deep breath. So the absolute control of our king should bring us peace. And then secondly, it should make us thankful. It should cause us to say with the psalmist, with David in Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Because one of the many things that should cause us to realize is that every benefit that we enjoy is a gift. From him. And so the absolute control of our king should bring us peace and make us thankful. But let me end by talking about what it should not do, but it often does. It should not cause us to doubt or question the character or the integrity or the power or the ability of Christ our king. And I say that because I know that as we went through that list, I mean, if you're anything like me, All right, here's what we tend to hear. God is in control of the weather. All right, we're not thinking about snow falling. We're thinking about the Doppler radar. 
We're thinking about hurricanes, we're thinking about tsunamis, we're thinking about earthquakes, other natural disasters. Wow. God controls agriculture, good news, but we're not thinking about our grass growing. I mean, maybe if that's your business, you're thinking about that, and you're thinking this time of year it's sort of slow. You know, Lord, make the grass grow fast so I can do more work. But here's what we're thinking about. Drought, famine. Seriously. God controls the nations. All right, we're not thinking prosperity and life. We're thinking war and strife. And even when we look at our own lives, you know, we're not looking at the benefits so much as we're looking at pain and divorce and injustice and and victimization and all of these different things that we have experienced in this life. And the temptation is to say, well, then I'm done. And it's a pretty powerful temptation. You can either run to this God or you can run away from Him. I want to close today by reading an email to you, to you that I wrote to somebody else um, a couple of years ago, and I think maybe I've read it once before here. Uh, there was a girl who grew up in this church, is a girl who grew up in this church, went off to school, went to work in Washington, D.C., so I think she's familiar with corruption at least. And um, pretty clear she's in touch with that at this point. But she's an all-out-there-for-Jesus person, and so she was cultivating a relationship with somebody that she worked with for the purpose of sharing Christ. And, and his name, I'm going to call him Bill, okay? His real name is Jim. So, um, <laughs> it's not, it's Pete. Um, but we'll go with Bill. Bill was in the Special Forces Army. Uh, he was over in Iraq. Uh, Bill saw all the ugliness of war. Bill participated neck deep in the ugliness of war too. And his comment to her was, I parted ways with God then. Because of what he saw. Because of what he experienced. Because of what he did. And so she writes to me and says, what do you do with that? So, I'm hopeful this might be helpful to you too. So I wrote her back and I said, wow, capital letters, wow. Don't worry, this is 16 point font, so like it's not going to be a book. I said, wow, well, here goes. I like to think of my life like a little puzzle piece. It's one part of a really big picture that I cannot see. In fact, all that I can see is my one little piece. And I can see all of its colors and hues and shapes, and I can speculate all day and night about what it all is and about what it all means, but that's the best that I can do because I can't see the big picture into which it fits. I can't see the overarching theme into which my little puzzle piece life fits and in which alone its final meaning and purposes are found. God alone sees the big picture. God alone has the the box top of the puzzle. In fact, He created that picture. And it's His puzzle. And here's the deal. He also created my little life with all of its colors and hues and often odd nonsensical shapes, and He created it to fit into the whole of His really big picture. And in finding its place in His picture, and only then and only there to make perfect sense. So as a result, I think that it's unreasonable to expect that my life will always make perfect sense to me in the here and now. My vision is too limited, 
The scope of my wisdom is too small. And God in life, for that matter, has not led me to believe otherwise. In fact, I go to God's Word and He tells me directly that His thoughts are not my thoughts and that His ways are not my ways. He tells me plainly that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so also are His thoughts than my thoughts. And so then what is He telling me? Well, at the very least, He's saying, Tom, you are finite and I am infinite. You are limited, and I am unlimited, and so by your very nature, you are incapable of comprehending all of my thoughts and ways, and you cannot reasonably expect to be able to do so. Such an expectation is illogical. Tom, there will be things in your life for which you have no explanation. Expect that. Things that will make no sense at all, anticipate that. Pain that seems meaningless and pointless from your itty-bitty, microscopic, puny, infinitesimally small, sin-stained, corrupted perspective. And so then, if I can just say this somewhat gently, Tom, get over yourself. And stop arrogantly assuming that I am as limited as you are, and that just because you can't make sense of it at all, that I won't be able to make sense of it either. Stop with your faithlessness, for that's what it is. And do what I've called you to do to trust me, even when nothing makes sense, for what is faith? Tom, I've told you what faith is. In fact, I've given you its definition. I'm not hiding these things from you. I've put it into my word. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, not things actualized, not things already in your hands. Faith is the conviction of things not seen as opposed to what you can in this life see. And there are plenty of things, my son, that you cannot and have not seen, like the whole rest of my really big and amazing picture. Have you read the story of Job, Tom? Have you read what I ordained in life for him? Have you compared your sufferings to that most famous of all sufferers? Did you notice that there were tons of things happening in that story which fully justified and made sense of his sufferings, but that Job was completely unaware of, thus his and your questionings? Have you read what I said to Job? Perhaps you should read it again. And have you considered my son Jesus? who left all of heaven with all its glories to suffer trials and temptations like no other man, even you. A man of sorrows who can fully sympathize with your weaknesses, yet without sin. And a man who on the cross asked why. Now there is something that you can relate to. And what was the answer? Well, in that moment, there was no answer. But you know the answer, Tom, don't you? The answer is for you. You're not supposed to know the answers to every question life leads you to pose, and there will be many. I am supposed to know the answer. And here's the thing. I do. You are supposed to trust in me. And when you doubt my love or goodness, you're supposed to go to the cross over and over and over again, where my love for you is forever and indelibly written, 
in the most precious ointment ever fashioned, the blood of my perfect son. It is a healing balm for the troubled heart and mind. So Tom, stop with your fussing. Enough with your anger. Put it away. Quit demanding answers that you are not even equipped to understand and run instead to my cross, which was a tree of death to my son, but which is a tree of life to you. Eat the fruit of his body. Drink his blood. And come home, my son, to the Father who loves you, who collects all of your tears in his bottle, and who promises one day to wipe them all away as I reveal to you the great beauty of your little puzzle piece life as it finally finds its place in my picture. There, the colors and hues and odd nonsensical shapes will suddenly make sense. And there you will stand in awe of how I can take even the darkest, most evil, awful things, like the unjust murder of my own son, for example, and out of them bring light and beauty and goodness and life. Come home, my son. Do not delay. And then I said, just substitute the name Bill for Tom. Guys, Christ our King controls absolutely everything. 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 And you know what? That should bring us peace. That's a good thought. For He is a good God. And it should make us thankful. Even in some odd, ironic way for the difficult things of life. Because here's the deal. He ordains them all, does He not? And He ordains them ultimately for His glory, which is so great. We so underestimate that. That it justifies it. Try to imagine a glory that great. And for our good. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to You this day. I pray thankful that You're in control of everything and that we've not been left to our own devices. Lord, that we are not victims of accident or chance or circumstance. My goodness, that instead that we find You in the hardest things, in our biggest failures, in our victimizations. Lord, that You are there. God, that You bring good and glory out of them. Lord, I pray that You would call us out of our sin, out of the arrogance of our judgmental attitude toward You, for that is what it is, arrogance. I pray, God, that You would humble us and awaken us. I pray that You would call us to repentance for doing A and getting B like 5,000 times and cherishing A and caring less about it or less about B than we do about You. Lord, may this be our day of deliverance, our day of help. Reorient our selfish thinking. Expose to us our limitations. 
and present Yourself to us. Scars and all, as our loving, sovereign, all-wise King who's got it covered. We pray that in You, we might find rest from our sin, from ourselves, and from all of the unrest that we're currently experiencing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.